Hello and welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. My name's Darren and I'm here with Faith. Hi. Pastor Faith. And we will get to the sermon in just a little bit, but we wanted to make some time and space to talk about something special that we've been having on Sundays. And it's a new song that Pastor Faith, you and your husband, Josh, wrote, and we've shared it with our community. Tell us a little bit about it. What's the name of it? Yeah. And where did it come from? Yeah, so it's called We Need You. Um, and I, I'm going to root this in 1 Corinthians 2 when Paul says, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Um, the, the first thing that was written for this song was the beginning of that bridge section that says, We don't need better plans. We don't need clever thoughts. We need your Spirit, O oh God. We don't want the wisdom of man. We want we want a display of God's power, which is really what the world needs. They don't need to see a show, or even in the area of worship, they don't need to hear good music. We need to see a display of the power of God. So it came from that heart cry. And then the beginning of the song kind of sets up this space where we invite Holy Spirit, we open our hearts, we clear out all the distractions, the things that get in the way and then just simply cry out for more of Him. And it's this this longing to be a, a space where the Spirit would rest mm-hmm. as a community. Yeah, I love that. That's such a the heart and core value of Garden Church. Exactly. Knowing that the Spirit is present, like He's welcome to the party and we get to celebrate. And I so appreciate the beauty and creativity that you've been cultivating, not only with worship, but just something that we can invite the rest of our community into. And, and it's so cool when, when uh, in the recording of this song, it's the first time that we shared it. And it's like people have been singing it for weeks. <laughs> and it was just such a cool thing to experience. And so we're so happy for those of you that have experienced that with us on a Sunday morning. And we want to see just more original songs being birthed from this place um, that you're talking about, just being saturated in the Holy Spirit. So we are welcoming you to stick around after the sermon where you can hear a live recording of the song, We Need You, and I hope it blesses your heart. Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. So good to be with you. Such a joy uh, to celebrate Easter Sunday. Um, For 2,000 years, Christians have talked about the message of Jesus as good news. And so this morning, I want to talk about what Jesus meant about good news. What did he mean when he said good news? But before that, I want to make one observation about the first Easter Sunday. And I want to talk about one problem I have with Christianity. Can we do that before I get to that? Are you guys good? Are you with me? We're already with me. If not, tacos are over there. Just say John or something like that. All right, so uh, one observation about, Christ, uh, about Easter morning is this. Everything about Christianity hinders on Easter Sunday. As the great Karl Barth once said, if there's no empty tomb, there's no Christianity. 
We believe in a living, resurrected Jesus. Without the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, Christianity is a fraud. It's not enough to be about the teachings of Jesus. It's not enough to talk about church or faith. We built our faith around this historical claim that Jesus lived, died, and raised from the dead. So I want to talk about that first Sunday morning. And let's just read this fascinating story together. So if you brought a Bible, congratulations, more uh, crown jewels in heaven or something like that. <laughs> Go to Luke chapter 24. That was a joke. <clears throat> I'll make sure that you know when I'm joking, okay? My wife always says, you're not funny, Darren. No, she doesn't. She, she laughs. She laughs. It was my humor that won her over. Um, as you will see today. Luke 24, chapter 1. On the first day of the week, Sunday, while the men were sleeping in, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed their, head, their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. They go what was that? Oh, there's a bee? No bees. Hey, they go on to tell the story in Luke. The women go back to tell the disciples and they think it's nonsense. Go to John's story. I love this one. This is my favorite. As you'll see, the author John calls himself the beloved disciple. Clever name. The one disciple that Jesus loved. Right? He writes his story of Jesus after all the, all the other disciples were killed. So he could do that. No one could argue. <laughs> but in the gospel of John, he writes this. Mary comes back to tell the other disciples that the tomb was empty. Verse 3 of chapter 20 in the, book, in the book of John. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Check this out. But, but both were running. But the other disciple, John, outran Peter <laughs> and reached the tomb first. This is the resurrection, okay? He's writing down how it happened. Somebody died and came back to life, was resurrected from the dead. And he really wants you to know something, that he got there first. <clears throat> but it's not finished. Look at He bent over, looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him, in case you, for you forgot. And went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who reached the tomb first, <laughs> also went inside. He saw and he believed. But still, they did not understand the scripture that Jesus had, had to rise from the dead. The story that we celebrate, that our faith is built upon is hilarious to me. Why? Because the disciples didn't see it coming. They're confused. They, they forget that he had to die. 
The whole time Jesus is alive, he's telling his followers, I'm going to die and I'm going to rise again. And they forget what he says. They have to be reminded by guys wearing lightning colored clothes. And when it's actually happening, John wants you to know that he beat Peter. Does anybody have a sibling rivalry that they want to just confess? It's in scripture. Do you, I mean, this is hilarious. It's funny. It's confusing. It's nonsense and doubt and forgetfulness and fear. They're bringing spices to finish the burial process. And, and if you were making the story up, you'd want to leave some of these details out. Especially the fact that women were the first to see the resurrected Jesus. Because, yeah, let's give it up for the women. It's about time, right? It is time. That even back then, they didn't see that their accounts were credible. But Jesus saw something that we're finally getting a handle on today. I love this. What do I love about the resurrection story? My observation about Easter, it's so human. This miraculous, crazy story, too good to be true, has doubt, confusion, missing the point, forgetfulness, burials, or sorry, spices for the burial, and right in the midst of your despair and defeat, empty tomb. He's risen. And if he's risen... And if he's really raised from the dead, then what else is possible? And this is what makes Easter so fascinating. That Jesus brings resurrection life right into ordinary life. This is what Easter is about. It's not some fascinating story. It's truth. It's fact. It's something that we have to wrestle with. There's confusion. There's doubt. There's despair and defeat. But yet again, the tomb is empty. So we as Christians, in case you're wondering, we believe that Jesus is Lord and raised from the dead. It's not enough to say that Jesus was a moral teacher, or a great teacher, or a great man, or a great prophet. That would invalidate the words he said about himself. So, observation number one, if there's no empty tomb, there's no Christianity. You with me? But let me say this. If there really was an empty tomb, if Jesus really did resurrect from the dead, then his resurrection would validate every word he ever said. Would you agree? But before we talk about his words and his message, I just want to highlight one problem I have. Probably the greatest problem with Christianity. Um, Gandhi said, if it weren't for Christians, I'd be a Christian. 140 years ago, Frederick Nietzsche said to a group of women, Christian women, he walked up to them and said this, it's recorded, yuck, you make me sick. Finally, a brave spokeswoman of the women, Christian women's group said, why? And he said to them, you redeemed don't look like you're redeemed. You're as guilt-ridden, confused, and neurotic in this environment as I am, but I'm allowed. I don't believe in anything. You have a savior. You should start looking like you're saved. One of the greatest problems with Christianity today is the church. 
The church doesn't look anything like Jesus. Somewhere along the way, the Jesus movement was hijacked. And today I look around the American landscape and I see a church that's exhausted, that's burnt out, that's tired, that's anxious, that's angry and mean. We're known from the outside as judgmental, hypocritical, anti-everything. We're known for what we're against and what we are for. And that's a problem because Jesus is far more generous, inclusive, forgiving, kind, loving, and forgiving than the church is. And the church is designed to represent and reflect the risen Jesus to the world. We have a problem. And this is why I'm here this morning. I'm here because I want you to know the real Jesus. My wife and I moved to the city to start a church because we believe the city needs a church, a vibrant church that looks like Jesus. The real Jesus. A church that's full of life, that looks as good and beautiful as the God that Jesus reveals in the New Testament. And so I'm sorry, as a pastor, for all of you that have come here today that have been hurt by the church. You have bravely showed up to an Easter Sunday because somebody brought you or dragged you or bribed you. They said, John's buying lunch. But I'm serious, I'm so sorry. As the lead pastor of the Garden Church, I know there's so much pain in this outdoor facility. <laughs> I would say room. I know that you've carried pain because people who are supposed to reflect the character and love of God have done the opposite. Where Jesus built bridge, bridges, we've built walls. We've said things, we've labeled things, we have created things uh, built on statements of position rather than postures of love. And I sincerely apologize on behalf of the church throughout history. But I believe in a better church. I believe in a real Jesus. And I want to talk about his message because he went around Galilee proclaiming good news. And for thousands of years, Christians have talked about good news. And I think the problem with the church today is we have lost the message of Jesus. We have distorted his message. And so I just want to share with you this ancient message of Jesus. What did he mean by good news? Can we do that this morning? And then we'll do some baptisms. We'll sing some songs. We'll, we'll get some chocolate Easter egg and we'll eat some food by John. Uh, the good news, so, so what was his message? Can I just share this? What was Jesus' message? In my own words, I would summarize it this way. The good news of Jesus is an invitation to experience abundant life here and now. The good news or the message of Jesus is an invitation to experience abundant life here and now. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus uh, says this in Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent 
and believe the good news. He came proclaiming good news. The kingdom of God has come near. He wasn't saying good news. You get to go somewhere else when you die. He wasn't saying good news. Stop sinning and stop having fun. As many of you think about the church. What he meant by good news is this. He meant good news. God's now in charge. See, we've missed this. This is what Jesus' message was all about. This is what his life demonstrated in the Gospels. And we've confused it for lots of reasons. But he came, he went around saying, good news, God's in charge. Now, some of you hear that and you say, if God's in charge, that's really bad news. Right? And I think that has to do with some of our perspective. Some of our issues, our distorted images that we carry of what God's like. Some of us think, if God's in charge, well, well God is angry. He's judgmental. He's, he's, he's uh, disappointed. He's a cosmic traffic cop waiting to write a ticket every time I make a mistake. He's just an angry judge. Or, or I was here with our staff praying on Wednesday. And maybe you think like Pam, who has two dogs, who if she came, she's the bravest woman I know. But she said, if there is a God, it is indifferent. And this is the sad reality that people believe. It's because... They don't know who Jesus really is. Jesus came to reveal who God is and what he's like. And God is so good and beautiful. And I want to talk about that in a second. But what did Jesus mean about God being in charge? What did he mean? Well, <clears throat> do we have any dads here? How many? Can we get the dads? Okay. For those of you, um, I just want to share my brief experience of what I think Jesus means by God being in charge. By talking about being a dad. So I became a dad uh, four and a half years ago. And I read a lot of books. I researched. I downloaded all the apps. Like seven apps. I'll tell you, nothing prepared me at all for what it took to become a father. But, but my experience was, the moment my wife, Alex, held Ezra in her arms, it was like she got this divine download. It was so unfair. <laughs> like, I was like, what just happened? Like, she'd be like, hey, that's not that kind of cry. He's hungry. He's not fussy. What kind of cry? Like, she would know, oh, no, he just needs to burp. How do you know this? Oh, it's this. He's, like, doing I, I'm just, like, I'm holding him awkward. I got, like, pinched nerve from holding him. She's, like, cooking, cleaning with one arm, feeding, breastfeeding at the same time. And, like, if I have five seconds alone, I'm just following her around. <laughs> Can I get an amen? <laughs> but when she was there, she was clearly in charge. There was a lot of harmony in our house when mom's around. Anyone want to relate? Nothing's more true than when we had our second son, okay? Because I got way better at parenting. As we got older, it became more natural. It became much easier for me to parent someone who can talk back to me and communicate, <laughs> communicate what's going on. But Amos came into the world, and it was another learning curve, right? Like, uh, and I remember, the, this is the moment I remember. Like, Alex had been putting Amos down for three months after he was born, and I was like, why don't you go out with one of your friends? So she decides to go out. I'll, I will put both boys down at the same time. 
So she left. Everything's going great, babe. Text her. She said, look for the signs. As Amos will let you know when he's tired. Give him a bottle. Put him down. It'll, it'll all be good. Just rock him to sleep. Bounce him this way. Shush in his ear. Put him in the crib. Done deal. So I'm putting Ezra, Ezra's in his jammies. Everything's, we're on his bed. I'm reading the Bible to Ezra. This is great. Look, I'm, I'm winning right now. I got this. Amos starts showing signs, I think. Ezra, I'm going to leave you in this room by yourself. I'm going to go put Amos down. No, daddy, I want to come with you. No, you got to, no, daddy, I want to come. No, stay here. I was reading the Bible story, let the little children come to me. <laughs> As I closed the door, I walked Amos and began to give him a bottle. I think it was his second bottle, and he immediately knew that's fake. Imitation. He's pushing it away like he knows Kung Fu. I think he's not hungry. He was definitely hungry. I start bouncing him. He starts crying and clawing at my face, wanting mom, knowing I'm a substitute. He's yelling. Ezra comes running into the rescue, turns on the light. Ezra starts crying because I shut the door and he gets foot gets stuck in and he runs in. Let the little children come to me. Amos is crying. I'm texting Alex, dear Jesus, help me. Come back soon, God. I put Amos down. He's crying. I, by the time I walk, into the, walk through the hall to Ezra's room, Amos is screaming. I text 15 different text messages to Alex. She has her phone off. And like, Lord Jesus, this is the worst thing ever. Why would you ever do this? I hate you. I want a divorce. It was something like that. <clears throat> He's demon possessed. I prayed, whatever. Ezra wants to finish the story. I can't. This is what happens. I shut the light off. Ezra, we got to go to sleep. And he says to me as I shut the light off, Life is hard without mommy. <laughs> you see, we were made to live in perfect harmony with one another. Perfect loving relationship with ourselves, with each other, with all creation. And something got messed up. We followed our own path. But Jesus, when he comes onto the scene, he says, God's in charge. Life's hard without God. And God intended us to live in perfect loving relationship with him, with each other, and all creation. And when Jesus came onto the scene, he wasn't just trying to, he wasn't trying to convert people to a religion. He was trying to invite people to experience life the way it was intended to be in the first place. The way God intended life to be in the first place is what Jesus meant by the kingdom of God. A life marked by joy and peace and love and harmony and wholeness and healing and forgiveness and righteousness and the presence of God dwelling in our lives. Doesn't that sound like good news? And this is why it was good news. And every time you see in the New Testament, Jesus encounters somebody. It's a story of radical transformation or rejection. There's no in-between. People, what happened when the kingdom of God, when God's way of life was demonstrated. It says in John 10.10, 10, this is John's version of this, this idea. 
Jesus says to, to listeners, the, to us, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And that word full is abundant, nourished, true life. And every time someone encounters Jesus, they experience this life. For the sick, it's healing. For the brokenhearted, it's comfort. For the blind, it's sight. For the religious, those burnt out on religion, it's spiritual awakening. For the outsider, it's inclusion. For the sinner, it's forgiveness. For the broken, it's wholeness. For the tired, it was rest. For the oppressed, it was liberation. For the anxious, it was peace. For the spiritually imprisoned, it was freedom. True, transformative life, the way God intended it to be here and now. The good news is God's way of life available here and now. But it's first an invitation. The good news is an invitation. Jesus doesn't force anything on anyone. It's funny the way the church sets itself up, forcing you to decide. Jesus was okay with you walking away. Think about that for a moment. He is the word of life. Regularly, he'd be in front of a crowd. He'd say, you, you, you have to die to yourself to follow me. Talk about a seeker-friendly message. <laughs> you want to know what I can do for you? I can teach you how to die well. We can't leave you, Jesus. You have the words of life. But it was always an invitation. Revelation 3.20. I love this passage. This is Jesus speaking. He says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Now that's so uh, profound for so many reasons. Because God is saying he is at the door of your heart knocking. He won't force himself into your life, but if you open it up, he will come in just as you are. He will have a meal with you. And in first century context, that's just embracing you as you are, not as you should be. In other words, Jesus waits patiently for you to let him in. That's how this relationship with him starts. The gospel is an invitation first to experience the, abundance, the abundant life that God has. Let me say that again. The good news is an invitation to experience the abundant life here and now. It's an invitation. It's God's abundant life here and now, but you have to experience it for yourself. And I think this is where the church gets it wrong. You see, the Christian life is not about being a spectator. It's not about knowing the right things about who God is. It's about becoming a part of the story. It's about experiencing God for your own life. That's why I'm here. Jesus transformed my life. He's healed my life. I had so much self-hatred. I wanted to commit suicide by the time I was 14. I have addiction that he's taken away. He's given, he, I had such bad insecurity. I would walk into a crowd and think everyone's judging me. I, had no, I, I felt like I had no value or worth. He's transformed the way I see the world, the way I see myself. He's transformed my marriage when I thought it was broken and done. He's healed my marriage. He's healed parts of our marriage that no one could have healed, no therapy could have healed. 
He's transformed my life. He's helping me with my anger right now. <laughs> Amen? <laughs> Where's my babe? <laughs> I'm looking at my wife. I've been getting better. <clears throat> oh, I could talk about the time that I was ambushed by God's love in prayer. And I felt what I would say is electricity through the Spirit of God all over my body. I could tell you about the time I watched and was praying with a guy who couldn't hear out of his ear. He was deaf and heard sound. I could tell you about the time cataracts disappeared from someone's eyes as I prayed. I could tell you about backs being straightened. I could tell you about my UPS friend, Eddie, who got healed and gave his life back to Jesus. And every time he sees me, he thanks me because God healed his life. I could tell you about my best friend, John, who wept on my floor in prayer because the Holy Spirit, through a word of knowledge, began to heal the pain of his father abandoning him as a child. I can talk about those experiences. But it's like me trying to describe a song to you that you haven't heard. You're either going to get it or not. Can I prove that to you? Can I have three volunteers? Do you have three volunteers in the crowd? Okay, wait, wait, wait. Let's do this. Where are the three clipboards? Okay, Faith, someone volunteer over here. Okay, I need one more volunteer back by John. John, raise your hand. Look where John is. Who can volunteer? You're not going to have to come up. You're not going to have to do, you're going to write something on a piece of paper. Okay, where's the other one? There's one more. Wait, where's the, okay, right here, Michael. Okay, Michael, right there. Okay, I got my three volunteers. Listen, volunteers, this is just for you. You're going to be given a song. You're going to be given headphones. Write and describe in your own words the song so everyone else knows what, we're, what you're listening to. Sound good? And we'll come back to you. So they're going to describe a song, and we're going to all say, oh, I get it. I totally know what you're talking about. So the rest of us, pay attention. You listen to that. Take your time. I'm going to stop you in just a few minutes. Write clearly, okay? Legibly, okay? I don't want to be like, is that a T or an I? Okay, so 1 John chapter 1. For those of you that brought your Bibles, check this out. What, what do I mean experience? 1 John chapter 1. This is that beloved disciple writing to the church again. <clears throat> he says this. From the very first day we were, we were there, taking it all in, we heard it with our ears, saw it with our own eyes, verified it with our hands, the word of life, Jesus, appeared right before our eyes. We saw it happen. And now we're telling you what we witnessed was this. The infinite life of God himself took shape before us. We saw it. We heard it. And now we're telling you so you can experience it along with us. This experience of relationship or communion with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. Our motive for writing is simply this. We want you to enjoy this too. The first disciples of Jesus, when they talked about what they wanted for the church, their desire was that the church would experience Jesus themselves. That they would enjoy the experience of communion, relationship with the Father through the Son, Jesus Christ, through His Spirit. The followers of Jesus wanted you to experience the presence of Jesus. Jesus wasn't trying to convert you to a religion. He was simply enlisting you to be a part of a revolution. He says, 
The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Repentance was to change your mind. Belief wasn't about just believing the right facts. It was about participating. It was about living out what you've come to know is true. And in the first century, we have outside of the Bible writings where, where revolutionaries use the phrase, repent and believe in the Greek. And it meant, it meant, let me find exactly what it meant. <laughs> when Jesus used the words, it didn't mean stop sinning, although that's part of it. It meant to re realign or reorder your life around this new idea, this new vision, this new reality. And for Jesus, it's the good news that God's in charge. Realign your existence. Join the revolution. Let down your, uh, your preferences and your dreams and come become a revolutionary in this new kingdom vision. It's a little different than stop sinning, stop having fun. It's become a participant in the kingdom of God. Extend God's way of life everywhere you go to everyone you meet. Are you with me? How are we doing? Can I, can I take those songs now? Hey, can we collect those? I know you didn't hear the whole song. But you got to experience it for yourself. So let me demonstrate this. I'm going to have you volunteers bring this up. Thank you so much. Give it up for the volunteers. They, oh, you're amazing. Thank you. I got some water. Thank you, Faith. Okay, so tell me if you know what song I'm talking about. Peace, happy, magic, sparkle, <laughs> joy, light, shine. You guys know what song she's talking about or he's talking about? It gives you a feeling of peace and excitement. It's colorful. How can a song be colorful? What is it about? Walking on a path? Alone at first, then a sudden feeling of not being alone. Someone has joined me. I'm spinning. Do you know what song she's, they're talking about? Epic. <laughs> Ethereal. Hopeful. It's leading towards something. There's strings and there's bells. Okay, you guys, we got it. You see, this is the problem of Christianity. We become experts about saying epic, ethereal, hopeful. But our job is to simply play the music in our lives because we were made to hear the music. Let's, let's see if having experienced the song, now if these words might make a little more sense of what we've experienced, shall we? We need to play that song. Peace. A feeling of peace. Walking on a path. Can you turn up the song a little bit? Can you guys hear it? Joy. Magic. Turn it up a little more. Happy. Light. 
Sparkle. <laughs> You're alone at first, suddenly feeling of not being alone. Strings, ethereal, it's leading towards something. Now let's just keep the song going. As these words come to life, I want you to see the message of Jesus something like this. You see, the good news is like a song that you hear in your house. You first, you don't know where it's coming from. But then you begin to search for it. It's somewhere in the house. And so you begin to move furniture around. You move the couch over here, the table over here. You start taking stuff off the walls. And then you start getting rid of stuff in your house because it's blocking the music that you hear because it's the most beautiful sound you've ever heard. It's louder and louder. Then you start opening up the windows. You start opening up the doors. You want everyone to hear the song that is playing within your house. Eventually, you've rearranged your entire home and your entire life around the song just for the sake of others, that others might experience the song that you've come to love and appreciate. See, that's what Jesus is like. Do you hear the sparkle yet? Does it sound like we're going somewhere? Are we walking on a path alone at first and suddenly we're not alone? Let's keep listening. Jesus reveals what God is like. God is love. He invites you to experience this God. The God that loves you, He loves you as you are and not as you should be. And this is good news. And it's too good to be true. Now all you have to do is say thank you for the gift that Jesus wants to give you. And if you're anything like me, you will do everything you possibly can to earn it. To say you're worthy. You're so confused because you've tried to prove everything to everyone else that you are lovable, that you are good enough, but that's not the gospel. Do you hear the song? Epic? Not yet. Strings, bells? It's leading towards something, isn't it? Excitement. Do you see the color now? You see, one of my favorite stories that Jesus tells is a story about what God's like. And he says this. You ever doubt what God is like? This is the story Jesus wants to present to you. God is like a father. God is like a father that has two sons. The younger son says to his dad, I wish you were dead. You're no good to me. All I want is my inheritance. And you'd think in that context that the father would disown the son, but he doesn't. The father does the unthinkable. He gives his son the inheritance. And the son takes, takes off. He takes the money. And he, he, he spends his money and squanders it on wild living. And a famine strikes and the son loses everything. So he goes to look for work in the fields. And he's feeding the animals. And as he's getting to the place where he's starving, he wants to eat the food that was given to the animals. He realizes that the, that the servants in his father's house have more than enough So he'll go home and beg his father for a job. So he makes that long journey home and he rehearses his speech. Dad, I'm not worthy to be called your son. I've sinned against you. I can't be forgiven. 
And one of the greatest verses in the Bible is this, Luke 15, 20. So the son went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, filled with compassion for him, ran to his son and couldn't stop kissing him. The son exhausted from the journey, pushing his dad away. Dad, I've sinned against you. I'm not worthy of being called your son. And the dad doesn't listen. He calls to his servants, son, get a robe on my boy. Calls to his servants, give me a ring. My son who is dead is alive. My boy who was lost has been found. And he throws a party. Epic. Colorful. Going somewhere. You were once alone, but it's almost as if somebody's joining. Spinning. This is the good news of Jesus. This is what Jesus comes to do to give you a scandalously true message about you, that God loves you as you are, and not as you should be. But here's the reality. You're either gonna get it or you're not. Jesus says it's for those that have ears to hear and eyes to see. You have to experience it for yourself. And so we say thank you. If the tomb is empty, then this message of Jesus is true. And that's why for thousands of years, Christians have said, he is risen. He is risen indeed. Our hearts are open. Our hearts are open.